Duke fans, welcome back. This is episode 213 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It has been a minute. We've been waiting for some news or literally just something to discuss, and we finally have a few things that we can get on and talk about. But before we do all that, it's Donald Wine, your host for this week. I am here in Washington, D.C., as I normally am. My man Sam Klein is also with me. He's joining us from Massachusetts. Sam, how goes it? I'm doing pretty good, Donald. It is. Uh, the pandemic continues to be weird, but uh, we're the, at least the three of us are here and healthy. So uh, thank God. And, and, and that we have things to talk about, even if there aren't actually sports on our screen yet. Yeah, for sure. And down in Atlanta, Jason Evans is with us. Atlanta, what's going on? I mean, Jason, what's going on? You're in Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Atlanta is what's going on. My city's been a little crazy uh, in recent days, um, but staying safe and just trying to get through these crazy, crazy times. Oh, was that it? Yeah. <laughs> just trying uh, to get through these crazy, crazy times. Yeah. yeah it, it, <laughs> Did it, I need to it, say more than that? No, just trying you don't. to get through these it's, crazy, crazy you, times. You basically nailed it on the head. <laughs> you you are Atlanta and and you you speak for Atlanta. So but okay, guys, we do have a few topics we wanted to cover today. I want to start first though with the Zion Williamson case because there was an update yesterday in the Florida lawsuit from a court that I'm very familiar with, the third district court of appeal. It's ironically where I had my first legal job as a judicial intern, and that court yesterday granted a full stay of the Florida lawsuit that was brought by Gina Ford and Prime Marketing. What does this mean? This means that Zion will not have to answer Ford's discovery request and that the venue now shifts to the lawsuit that he filed against Ford in North Carolina. And just quickly for the legal aspects of things, this was a decision that was already expected. The legal precedent goes back a long ways, but the most prevalent and most relevant precedent it was back to a case that coincidentally involved NHL legend Sergei Fedorov. And so a full stay of this case was always going to happen because it would have constituted what they call an abuse of discretion to deny the stay. Basically, there was no reason to overturn the stay that the lower court had instilled in it. So to summarize, Zion does not have to answer the request for admission that Ford submitted that alleges that Zion and his family took money to go to Duke. Unless for some reason the Florida Supreme Court reverses the Court of Appeals decision, and there's no reason to suggest there would, but you never know with the, with the Supreme Courts, the stay will be in place until the conclusion of the lawsuit in North Carolina. So, Jason, now that I've given some of the legal aspects surrounding what came down yesterday, give me your thoughts on what this means uh, for Zion and for Duke. Well, so uh, Zion always preferred North Carolina for this lawsuit. So this is a big win for him. And the reason he preferred North Carolina is because North Carolina law is very clear on who is an agent and who is allowed to act like an agent. Gina Ford is not registered with the state of North Carolina as an agent. She is therefore not allowed in the state of North Carolina to act like an agent. What she was doing for Zion Smith, I'm sorry, what she was doing for Zion Williamson is acting like an agent. And so... Uh, she's not going to win in North Carolina. There, there's just very little chance that she has of succeeding in this North Carolina case. Her only chance is probably to prove that Zion was not a college athlete. And I just think that's going to be very, very tough for her to prove. There is a lot of stuff that she and her team have alleged about Zion's relationship with Duke. 
It's making a lot of headlines. There's not a lot that they have proven. There's not a lot of evidence that they've submitted. I mean, look, one of those pieces of evidence uh, that they had is a lease that Zion's stepfather got on a, Merce a 2018 Mercedes-Benz vehicle. Mercedes, I mean, it sounds really big. It sounds something to be very damning. But the reality is like that lease was signed in April of 2019 after Zion's career as a Duke basketball player was over. So anything from April of 2019, not evidence. I mean, at that point, you know, you're, you're grasping at straws that don't make any sense. There's a simple reality here, which is that I believe it is entirely possible. I am not going to say that I have any reason to doubt that Zion and his family may have gotten paid by someone because it's just really, really common for that to happen on the, on the shoe circuit with these big shoe companies. But Duke didn't have anything to do with it. And the NCAA already looked into it twice. Twice the NCAA has looked into Zion's eligibility. And the NCAA won't tell you about their investigations other than to say Zion Williamson was eligible to play for Duke. Gina Ford needs them not to say that. They've already said that twice. Gina Ford is going to lose her lawsuit as a result. Just to add that the one of the things that's always complicated in these in these stories is how part of this is playing out in the in the actual legal courts. This is the you know the realm that Donald is is vastly more familiar with than either Jason or I are. But then there's also part of it. That, and what's interesting in this case is that it it also ties back to what's going on in the sort of private court of the NCAA. Whereas Jason notes, you can have if the NCAA says Zion Williamson was was okay, good to go as a college basketball player. That means they don't have evidence that he was taking any money or anything like that prior to his declaring the end of his eligibility at the end of his freshman season. And uh, this is one of those weird instances where there where there is some overlap between these types of cases, so to say. They're not they're not cases in the same way that you know, like a legal case is not the same as an NCAA case is. Um, but there is some interesting overlap here. It, but it's important for for fans and and readers and people who are interested in this sort of thing to keep those different realms separate. One is not exclusive to the other. Uh, as we're as we're hearing more of these things come out, it does sound like it's going to be hard for for Gina Ford to to get anything by the courts that would be a, a payout for her. And I guess Donald, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like this uh, that this this stay in in Florida is going to be a real hit to to their general. Uh, to their case, but um, like, which I think is consistent with what we were talking about a few weeks ago, which is we don't think this is going anywhere. And until there's some other groundbreaking evidence that appears, nothing is nothing has changed here. Zion's eligibility from his one year at Duke is not currently seriously in jeopardy, nor is Duke's 2019 season. Uh, and this is kind of just a distraction for for Duke and for Zion Williamson. Yeah, and you know, Gina Ford and and her marketing team and her lawyers are trying to put out these buzzwords to make people react, right? You know, admit that you took money. It, you know, all of these things are set up so that when they play out in the public eye, people just assume one thing, right? But then there's also the thing, I mean, Jason pointed out the fact that he got, a, you know, his dad got a lease for a, a, for a vehicle in April of 2019. Whether the date was April 2019 or February 2019 doesn't really make a difference because it's not like that is an impermissible benefit, right? Anyone can get a lease. And just because his dad may not quote unquote be able to afford it, there are several times. And look, I grew up in the auto industry. My dad worked for GM for 40 years. I worked for GM for a while. Like 
there are times where they extend you things like leases to cars that you probably couldn't afford based on what they think you can afford down the road. It's a setup. It's, it's all about, hey, I know you don't have the money, but your son does. It happens a lot to people in college. I know you don't have the money, but your parents do. It's the same thing going around here. So when they put that out there saying, oh, well, you know, you know, Mr. Williamson leased a, leased a Mercedes. Those are big buzzwords get it garnered to only go at the public for the public to assume one thing happened when really it, it, it's just the general course of business that someone can walk into a Mercedes dealership and get a, get a car based on what they might earn down the road and their ability to pay said car off. Jason, do you, you remember? Else in? I was going to say, if you remember, if you remember all that silliness from Lance Thomas's senior season about the jewelry, um, mm-hmm. this was, yep. it's sort of similar to what you're describing here, which is that, Lance Thomas was able to apparently obtain like hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of, of strange jewelry from a, from a sketchy jeweler in New York city. And, and at the time I remember, I think I've said this on the show multiple times, there was a whole thing about how, Oh, well his eligibility should be up. What was so weird at at the time is that no one thought Lance Thomas was going to play in the NBA. So like that from, from our perspective, I think it was, well, I guess that that jeweler was just doing bad business because he was, because he was handing out, you know, jewelry on loan to somebody who he wasn't sure was going to be able to pay it back. But mm-hmm. I, I don't know exactly what the what the NCAA says if they look at a thing like that. But it's not it's not the you know, the NCAA, as we've noted, is not a government organization. They are not they can't compel the car dealership to release the terms of their leases or anything like that. I mean, that's right. not that's not, their their jurisdiction certainly does not go that far. They may be able to do that if like somebody associated with the school was giving Zion a a gift that was specifically related to the university. So if if Duke University had given his parents like some kind of complicated medical treatment or or jobs or something, then that could be potentially under more scrutiny scrutiny because the because the NCAA may have some jurisdiction there, but not not in an organization that's totally that's totally independent of Duke or of Zion's family or anything like that. So, so the two things that I'll say as we wrap this up, one is, and we've said this before, the unfortunate thing is. Gina Ford's attorneys are trying to make headlines. Those headlines make Duke and Zion look bad. And when the truth comes out, no one's going to pay attention to it. They're just going to remember the headlines. The same way we have to deal with questions about Lance Thomas and questions about Corey Maggette and questions about other stuff like that over the years, none of which has been connected to the Duke program. We're going to have to deal with this Zion stuff forever. Anytime someone mentions Zion Williamson and Duke, there are going to be some haters out there who say, yeah, he got paid. I know he got paid. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We're never going to be able to stop that. And that's the power of public perception that Gina Ford's attorneys have chosen to invoke. And it's a little bit disgusting and wrong, but there's nothing we can really do about it. But then the other thing I will say is this. Again, the NCAA has looked into all these relationships. The NCAA does have the power to talk to Zion and his family. If they refuse to talk to the NCAA, the NCAA would just say, fine, he's ineligible. The NCAA has spoken to Zion and his family. It has spoken to Duke University. Now, the NCAA doesn't release grand findings. The NCAA merely says, you're eligible or you're not. They don't get into a lot of specifics. So they said, he's eligible. That's where we have to go with this. There isn't much more to be said than that. Zion is eligible. But I'll tell you something else that I want people to understand. If Zion's mother or father-in-law, uh, stepfather, and it was probably it was his mother, we believe. If Zion's mother 
was paid by Nike to be a consultant, to tell them about different aspects of things she knows about high profile athletes and things like that. That is perfectly legal. That is allowed under NCAA rules. It is something that is done all the time. So anyone who's like, wait a second, how'd they get the money for this car? How'd they get the money to, to lease that house or whatever? Nike, Adidas, Under Armour, you name it. They are allowed to pay these parents to be consultants, to run, to run grassroots basketball teams, to run tournaments, all these other kind of things. It is done all the time. And it is not an implication of either that player's eligibility or the school that player chooses to attend. It's just not. So that's the world we live in. And as we've said a million times, can we please let name, image, and likeness come into effect so these players can be paid above board as opposed to this weird underground economy that has existed for a long time? That, that's, that's what has to happen. And that will fix all of this immediately. I'm out. It's going to be interesting because in this changing climate that we have, I've said this for years, it's always funny when we discuss what people can and can't do in this country. It becomes about how, yes, we should be able to you know, work and go to school and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and do the things we need to do to be successful until you become a college athlete, most specifically a basketball or football player, because at that point, nobody in your family is allowed to do anything. No, you're not allowed to do anything. You can't so much as accept a coupon for a free milkshake without somebody having to go to the NCAA about it. All of that needs to change. And I think as this current climate goes, we'll talk about it in the next segment. And as this current climate proceeds, they're going to need to look at some of these things. They're going to need to talk, have some of these important uncomfortable conversations about why they think the way they do about some of these college athletes. Okay, guys, next up, I want to shift to the NBA. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about college football on this as well, but mainly want to start with a focus on the NBA because with the growing racial injustice movement, there has been some heated discussion amongst the players about they should play in this playoff plus tournament that they're doing down in Orlando beginning next month. Last week, all of the black players in the NBA were in a Zoom call led by Kyrie Irving discussing whether playing in these games in Orlando would take away from their platform and ability to call for social and racial and justice reform. Jason, I want to toss it to you because you've been up on some of the some of the angles of this. I want you to kind of bring us up to speed with everything in the NBA. You can, you know, I know there's a couple things in college football as well where coaches, some coaches have been telling themselves lately, but also I want to get to the aspect of what are these players saying and, and do you agree with them? Sure, sure thing. Um, let's, let's, you said, let's get to the college football controversies in a little bit. I want to start with Kyrie Irving and the NBA. Um, uh, so the NBA in a conjunction with the Players Association, uh, you know, voted to restart the league. And, and it was after that, that, that some players began to say, hang on, I'm not sure this is the right thing to do, that we would be distracting from the important social justice conversation that's happening in this country. And Kyrie has been the leader of that. Dwight Howard has also joined it. There have been a couple other players who've voiced some concerns. But Kyrie has been the one saying the most loudly, we should not be playing, we should be focused on social justice. I applaud him for the sentiment behind what he's saying. The NBA players have a great platform to be able to 
make the social justice argument. And I firmly believe, I hope I should say, and I believe we are going to see NBA players kneeling in mass during the national anthem as a way of showing solidarity with the movement that Colin Kaepernick helped to start. Um, and I applaud that. They are trying to bring awareness to a very, very serious issue about social justice, racial justice, and policing in this country. And the, in my opinion, the best way to do that is to play the games, get back in the public spotlight because you're playing the games, and as a part of the, cir the circumstances surrounding those games, the interviews you give pre- and post-game, the way you conduct yourself during the game, during the national anthem and the such, that's where you bring attention to these issues. But without games, it's, just, it's so much harder for these players to really bring attention to these issues. I don't understand Kyrie's argument, we should not play at all, and that's how we support the cause. That doesn't make sense to me. Donald, maybe, do you disagree? Does, does, does that argument make sense to you? How does it, being out of the spotlight put them in the spotlight? I don't get it. It, it makes sense for a, a, a few reasons. I'll, I'll talk about a couple of them. First, let's establish this fact. Lost in all this is that Kyrie is talking about players not playing. Kyrie is not playing in this. He is injured. He's not yep. He's not going to be playing in this. So, and, and Dwight Howard and a couple other people, when they speak, you know, it, it's, people are listening. But really, here's what it boils down to. The NBA has done a great job over the last decade of making the players and they're elevating their platforms so that when they speak, people listen around the world, not just in basketball, not just in the United States. When these guys talk, these guys, the world will stop to hear them speak. They have been speaking this whole time. There hasn't been any games going on, but that hasn't stopped their message from getting crossed. That hasn't stopped from people trying to figure out the link to the Zoom call that has the entire NBA on it. So the players playing, they're afraid that it will stop that momentum because then the focus will shift to the games and not to the message. And also, really, because they're in this bubble, at least this bubble that they're trying to create in Orlando, they're going to have to give up some, you know, some freedoms, right? They're going to, they won't be able to go out in the public and they won't be able to protest. They won't be able to do all these things. And so that is what all these guys are talking about. But at the end of the day, the NBA has propped them up to a point where really, if they speak, if they say, Hey, we don't want to play these games, people are still going to listen. The games aren't going to add to that platform because they've already been created. But really I will say it boils down to this. If LeBron's playing, the NBA is playing. If LeBron says, yo, I'm sitting out, guarantee you this thing is over. Because if he speaks, the solar system stops. Because he, his platform is, you know, all the NBA players are all the way up here. He is like 14 levels above that. When he, if he makes a decision saying, hey, we're going to, you know, we're going to do this at the tournament. We're going to, we're going to kneel. Because remind you, the NBA does have a rule saying that players must stand for the national anthem. Other leagues don't have that, but they do have this rule, and players have been abiding by that. If he says, hey, they ain't gonna abide by any longer. They're, I guarantee you, you're well, gonna see guys kneeling. I guarantee Well, here's you. the thing. Here's the thing. I, I think the NBA will work with them on that. I don't think the NBA yeah. is gonna be like, nope, you're gonna have to do it. But I think LeBron and a couple other guys, but LeBron's gonna be the leader. He's gonna come and maybe Chris Paul, uh, you know, I don't know if it'd be Kyrie, but like Steph Curry, those kind of guys are gonna go to the NBA and they're gonna say, here's our demands, here's what's gonna happen. And this is what you guys need to work with us on. And I'm pretty sure that Adam Silver, he's, he's proven to this point that he is willing 
to go to the table and say, okay, we can we can agree to this. We we have some pushback on here, but you know, let's figure something out and and hey, hey, make it make Donald, it easy to do. Yeah, let, let me jump in and just ask you: Do you think? I mean, it's to me, it's a real simple question. Do they accomplish more by not playing, or do they accomplish more by playing and having the spotlight on them for the games and making their statement? Again, during the games, during the national anthem, and in post-game and pre-game interviews, don't you think uh, they get more attention if they're playing? No, I think it's the same, and that's why there that's why there's a lot of pushback from a lot of these players. And here's the thing: playing the games may elevate the platforms of those stars that I just mentioned, the LeBrons, the Steph Currys, the Ky- even the Kyrie Irvings and Kevin Durant's and Chris Pauls. But for the Bruce Browns, right? You don't know who Bruce Brown is. I know who he is because he played for the University of Miami. Like those guys, the the guys that are seventh, eighth, ninth on the bench, their platform is elevated when they don't play. Their platform is elevated when they have the chance to speak and there's nothing. Hear me out. They have the chance to speak and there's nothing else to draw attention away from them. Then their their platform is elevated. When they play the games, they fear that their voices are shut out because their platform is can't penetrate that game ceiling whereas lebron and steph curry and the stars already are above that so that is why there's been a big pushback it's not necessarily a lot of the stars want to play because they know their platform isn't going to be that much that really much affected by it and their platform can carry the others but the guys who have their own platform they're nine to five or they're the ninth tenth of the bench those guys are afraid that their voices won't be heard when games resume. And that's why that this is a really big deal. And I think the NBA needs to address it. Sam, go ahead. Yeah. The thing we need to acknowledge here is that not only are, is the, the conversation about race in the United States that's currently going on very complicated. It's also changing. The nature of the conversation is changing weekly at this point. When, when the, when we talked about the NBA deciding that they were going to come back, the, the fervor around, around racial injustice was i think just starting to come back to a boil it's obviously been through you know a, a few of these periods in our in our history where it mm-hmm. becomes top of mind and that started again right around the time when the nba was coalescing around this plan to begin again in july i think what and and kyrie is the i think i got this right is that kyrie is the players union representative for the nets so he's yes, not yeah. Himself. He speaks not just for himself, but also for his teammates. And it's an interesting thing to see that he, at some point, voted to approve this plan and then came back and changed his mind, I think, because because things are changing so quickly and because we don't really have a sense. We know what the NBA's plan is for broadcasting the games and keeping the players isolated and, and keeping the staff isolated. There's still some conversation about if it's okay to have uh, some of the coaches not on the bench because they're too old or, or have health conditions that might prevent them. And is that like an ageist issue? And that's, that's sort of separate. And we're not even addressing that here unless you guys want to talk about that. But the, the fact is that this is, this is sort of an, an ongoing thing. And we don't know yet exactly how these games are going to look. We know they're going to be sort of in empty gyms. Is there going to be a lot of pregame activity? Well, not really. You, it's not necessary to have somebody walk out on the court and do the national anthem. They probably will still stand for the national anthem, but for the most part, the national anthem is something for the in-person audience and is not televised. So are they going to even bother having it and televising it and making us all 
watch, you know, is that going to be part like, you know, the game starts at seven o'clock. Okay. At seven o'clock, I turn it on and it's going to be the NBA announcer saying, all right, and now we're going to pause for two minutes for the national anthem with the players just standing on the court by themselves with no fans around and nobody else there to acknowledge it. What's even the the point of that? If there's no in-person audience, I think what we aren't acknowledging is how different this is going to be. There also won't be you, Jason, you mentioned pre and post game press availability. Are the press going to be in the locker room with the players? I doubt it. They don't need to. No, it's it'll, not be, like, it'll be over zoom. It'll be over. You know, it'll be, so it'll be, it's going to look a lot different um, than, than the NBA and, and, and sports that we're used to. What's most intriguing to me here is that we happen to have gotten like the league that happened in the United States, the league that happens to have moved the quickest on coming back during the pandemic happens to be in the NBA happens to be the league that also is the most tied to the players having individual brands around, not just superfluous selling shoes and stuff, but also being involved in community issues and and race and whatever other sort of things they, that the players want to speak up about. And we're seeing here how that, how that complexity is weaving into the NBA's plan to reopen because Kyrie, I think we can all acknowledge Kyrie has been somewhat of an individual in a number of points in his career. He's, he's had some sort of weird takes and he's also had some interesting thoughts about player branding and and all this kind of stuff. And we acknowledge that he's, even if we don't necessarily agree with him, that he's thoughtful about some of this stuff. We're seeing how complicated this is now. And we're seeing how reasonable minds can disagree about the way the best way for the NBA and its players to showcase its support for for change and reform. One thing I will you made a great point, Sam, and I'll do this and give it to Jason to kind of close this the NBA part of this out. You mentioned the things that are changing. One of the things that has come across the players' minds, and it's not just in the NBA, it's in every sport around the world. They are seeing the sports that are starting to come back what those leagues and those players are doing to call attention to something that is occurring here in the United States, the Bundesliga, everyone's kneeling, you know, black lives matter was on the back. It will be on the back of every EPL player on their Jersey this weekend. They're wearing a black lives matter patch the rest of the season. NASCAR got rid of the Confederate flag. They banned it. And they had a black lives matter car bubble bubble Wallace was driving a black lives matter car that is something that black people have n- never thought in a million lifetimes that they would see they are looking these these interviews what Kyrie's saying about you know let's just start our own league like he's not serious about it he's drawing attention to the nba and saying look we cannot be outwoke by the rest of the world on a subject that is pertaining to us in the United States. And this is a shot to every single league out there in the United States that you better come correct because if you don't, the players will respond. And in the NBA, the players are strong enough that their response will outweigh the league. They've built it that way. The league has given them that platform and they're about to use it. And I think the NBA needs to recognize that and come correct because if they don't, then we're going to see some of these things play out that the NBA doesn't want to see play out. And there is, there is a way for the NBA, I think, to manage the conversation here. Cause we've talked about how the NBA and commissioner silver are really good at listening mm-hmm. to the players and, and allowing them to speak their minds and be, be out in the community. The NBA is better at that, at least than all the other American sports are. And I get the impression, although Donald, you can probably correct me on soccer that, that, the NBA is definitely better than the major European soccer leagues at this kind of stuff too. Mm-hmm. So 
So it's really a great opportunity for the NBA to to further develop that brand and say, all right, let's sit down with Kyrie and, and talk about ways that we can either spend money or give airtime or or do volunteer work, whatever it is that we think is going to help causes that the players feel most passionately about. Mm-hmm. That is that's an opportunity the NBA has. And and hopefully this Kyrie's protest that as we mentioned, other players have joined in on that will lead to even bigger and better change than it would have had he had he not spoken up about this after the fact sort of after the the agreement had been reached between the players and the league if it's gonna happen it's gonna happen in the nba like the nba is sam there are leaps and bounds as far as the 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 link between the players and the league there are leaps and bounds above any league on planet earth that is going to be that is why this is important yeah, the NFL has no conversation between the players no. and the league. And Major League Baseball only, apparently, in the last couple of weeks, has only had bad conversations between the players and the league. The yeah. NBA's the NBA is far and away. We'll say baseball for the day. We, me and oh, you can talk about it. Don't, 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 get me started. don't get me started on the on the on the mess that is Major League Baseball. Sorry, yeah. Jason, did you have something to say? Yeah. So let, let me let me wrap up the NBA discussion by saying this: while I disagree with Kyrie about the value of um, of not playing. Um, I, I think the players are better off playing and and having an enhanced profile as a result of that. And I think the money they earn is money that they can help to funnel into their communities, which is something that, that is very important to them. I will say this about Kyrie. The fact that he has raised this, the fact that he's talking about this is enhancing the conversation. It is making players address this important point about how they play a role in social justice. And as a result of that, I think you are going to see even more of a focus from NBA players and from the league. And so, again, while I disagree with Kyrie about how to accomplish it, the fact that he's making us talk about it is a really good thing. And in that, he has accomplished something very, very important. I do agree with Jason that them playing gives them a better platform to do this than if they didn't, although I'm open to that. To the, I'm at least open to the idea that that's not the case. The way I think about it is mm-hmm. that the players have, you know, however much time they spend playing games and practicing, they also have a lot of, they're going to have a lot of downtime, right? Normally during the season, if they're visiting some other city, they may go out and check out the sites or whatever. If they're home, they're spending time with family and friends. They don't, they won't be able to do that. And the schedule will be compressed such that we remove some of that downtime. There will still be downtime for the players. And I think you'll see the players who want to be most active getting out in traditional media and doing interviews and talking, you know, let's say uh, someone like, like Giannis has a big game in the playoffs. The next day he can go on TV and talk about it and he can bring up, by the way, I also want to talk about this other thing. There, there won't be so much NBA content that we'll be able to fill SportsCenter every day with with conversations just about the game. Other stuff will come up, and I think you'll see the players who are really good at this, who who are who are really good at speaking their minds and doing so in a in a thoughtful and reasonable way. They will figure out how to weave this into the conversation about the games, and it won't be just the superficial nature of who scored more points or who had who had cooler highlights. I, totally. I think you'll see. I think you'll see a lot of of great discussion come out of this. Because I think there are a lot of really smart NBA players who are able to to have these conversations and weave it into the rest of their sort of professional discussion. Hey, so we promised we were going to also talk about college football, and I want to do that really quickly because we're going long. Um, uh, Mike Gundy, the head coach at Oklahoma State, uh, got in some very serious trouble this week for being seen in a photograph 
Again, it wasn't anything he said. In a photograph, he was wearing a OAN One America News t-shirt. Um, for those of you who don't know what One America News is, it is, um, I don't want to get too political here. It's an organization, it's a news organization that thinks that Fox, Fox News is not conservative enough. One America News very much takes a extreme right-wing position on a lot of issues. Uh, and I'm not going to get into, there are people who say that they spread conspiracy theories. Uh, in any event, they are a very controversial news, news organization. Um, and Mike Gundy's football players, uh, including some of the best, I mean, Oklahoma State's a very good football team. They're running back. I blanked on his name. I'm an idiot and I feel Hubbard. like <laughs> Thank you. Uh, the best running back in the country right now saw the picture of Mike Gundy wearing an OAN t-shirt and said, uh-uh, no way. You are not allowed to support that organization. That is a racist news network. And he essentially said, I'm done with it. If this is what Mike Gundy stands for, I'm done. It took Mike Gundy like maybe 12 hours, not even, to go, not oops, even. sorry, like, oh boy. It took like, it took like five minutes all of a sudden. Like, you're <laughs> like, oh, hey, Mike Gundy, so if you're talking. Yeah. So, but the point of this is, uh, we were talking about the NBA being a, being a league, a sports organization that understands that it needs to play a role in racial justice um, and in social justice. Uh, college football is, is almost the exact polar opposite of that. It is, it is an organization that has done a very, very poor job of addressing racial issues and social justice in the past. It is learning in a very rapid fashion this summer. Over the past few weeks, we've seen a number of, of episodes. We talked about some of them on this podcast in the past. Mike Gundy, who is a big name in college football, hit, hit one of them himself this week. Um, college football is starting to understand. It needs to also become socially and racially aware. And when the vast majority of your players are young African-American men, you must address the issues that matter to them. If you do not, they will address it for you. And the way they are going to address it is going to be bad for your organization. So I hope everyone in college football is getting the message that Mike Gundy got this week. And, yeah. and the, the, the fact that the pandemic is going on on top of it adds another layer of the leadership that the coaches, the administrators having to add a layer of protection. So they're acknowledging, I think in the past, it was easy for them to say, look, we're just here to coach them football. We're here to just do our jobs and go home. I think now that leadership is taking a, a much more holistic, you know, look at what is doing right by our players, what is doing right by our programs and, and having these things happening at the same time is probably opening their eyes further to, Oh, I can't just, Mike Gundy can't just teach his players how to be good football players. You know, he has to make sure that they are that they are safe and well and thriving in their community and acknowledging that a guy like Chuba Hubbard has has a huge platform and and can enact change in the way that NBA players can because he is that influential. He is that good and he's he's one of the as you noted Jason, he's one of the best players in college football. So people are going to pay attention to him. Yeah, and when it comes to that, it's it was very telling. I know last episode we we touched briefly on uh, Dabble Sweeney's problems that he had uh, at Clemson and, and still continue to have at Clemson. Uh, we talked about Florida State and the issues that their coach was facing. This was a little different because we did not, when we heard from players, none of them were praising him. None of them were praising Mike Gundy at all. They all came out. I mean, from he got death, zero defenders, he, zero defense. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't like some guy coming out like, yeah, yeah, y'all misunderstood. That's he's still like, he takes care of us. All of them were like, you heard Hubbard. 
You heard what he said? And it wasn't like they came out and were like just liking it or retweeting it. They all had something to say. And I think that's why it took, you know, you know, faster than a, a Chuba Hubbard 40 for Mike Gundy to get up in the locker room and be like, guys, what what yo, my bad. What do we do? But here's the other thing that I will touch on real quickly. Hubbard apologized for putting it on social media. He was like, in this video that was posted on Hubbard's Twitter, right, uh, right. Twitter, there was one apology in that whole 50-second thing, and it came from Hubbard. It didn't come from Gundy. Gundy just said, I recognize, I hear what you guys are saying, and we'll talk about it. And then Hubbard was like, I should have gone to coach, and I apologize for putting it on social media. I should have gone straight to coach. And everyone was like, hang on. Every single time this kind of happens, and now people are starting to wake up and realize, like, look, these players shouldn't be apologizing for how they did it because how they did it is what made it an issue in the first place. It's what brought it to the forefront is that if he didn't post about it on social media, if he just went to coach about it, no one would have cared. No one would have like, oh, I wonder if the players are upset about it. He came out and said, I'm not playing for the school again. Texas players came out and said, if y'all don't take out the eyes of Texas are upon you, we will not play for you again. That is a big deal. Like they are, I mean, these players are starting to realize that they mobilize and they organize and they strategize, like Killer Mike said uh, a couple weeks ago. They can do a lot of things and enact a lot of change. And we're going to start seeing that. I'm glad that some of these schools, notably Duke, have come out in front and, like, hey, players, speak your mind. Tell us how you feel. They're starting these conversations. But when it comes to some of these schools, and, and especially in some of these areas that are prone, that we know that, that they have some some people there that only view black players as for entertainment and for football and not for their social justice you know thoughts they're going to learn real quickly that their program may not be as solid as they think it is and if it if if it takes dismantling some of these institutions and and rebuilding them back up the way they're supposed to be so be it after this we're going to after this break we are going to talk about some of the best dunks in Duke history, we're going to end on a good note, but stay tuned after this commercial break. Okay, guys, our last segment, I wanted to have some fun, okay? Over on Duke Men's Basketball Twitter, they have been doing a contest basically a, a bracket if you will on the best dunks in duke history now they are down to the final four now right now you can vote on either zion's 360 against clemson in 2019 versus jason tatum's dunk against unc in 2017 and on the other side of the bracket it's dante jones with the push-up dunk against virginia in 2003 going up against grayson allen dunking the life out of michigan state in 20 in the 2015 final four so that brought us to the general conversation between the three of us of which dunks do we think are the best of all time by a Duke player. So, Sam, I we've talked about this many times about our best dunks or our favorite dunks. So I want to start with you because I know you're coming up with one that's both one of the most fire dunks ever and one of the most slept on of all time. The coolest most awesome dunk in Duke history was the one that Gerald Henderson laid down against Maryland in 2009 at the Comcast. I think it was the Xfinity Center or the Comcast Center, whatever. It was, the, the, it was the Comcast Center at that point. Yeah. They were the still placement for. I believe Donald, you and I were both at that game, but this is before we knew each other. Is that correct? I have the fact I was in college at the time and Donald was just a DC Duke resident. 
and we both attended that game. And I specifically remember there the the sequence for for Duke fans that don't remember, you should go back and watch it because it's awesome. The sequence the way, was it, it was eliminated in the final eight in the contest. It, it, it was yeah, right. It, it was eliminated it in the final up. eight. Yeah. Uh, Nolan Smith suffered a concussion in the play right before where he got decked by a Maryland player who was setting a screen and he came off the floor. The Maryland fans were cheering about the fact that Nolan Smith had to come off the floor. He was not the superstar that he would become the next year, but he was still one of Duke's important players in that season. Gerald Henderson was not thrilled about the treatment that Nolan Smith had received both physically and verbally from the Maryland faithful and took it upon himself to deliver justice. So he went straight down the lane. He went up for the dunk. I don't think he did a full 360. He sort of like did a did a spin, like a like a hat spin in the okay. air. And he, but the coolest thing, the coolest moment of it, and which you have to go back and see, is that he landed on the ground with his feet spread spread wide, and he sort of sort of brought his hands down really he strong stomped. and was like he stomped he on him. Like, Get out of here. I, I will take no more of this. And and I have been to a few Duke games in College Park, Maryland, and I am usually pretty restrained in the way that I that I act because I know that it's, you know, a little bit tougher of a place to be an opposing fan, especially if you're a Duke fan. But I remember being at the stadium and having that happen, and I leapt out of my seat and started screaming at at the, you know, at the court because I was so excited. Obviously, I have a little bit more juice in this one because I was at the game, but to me that is that is probably the coolest Duke dunk that I'm ever going to see. So, so I'm going to say this. You just talked about one that was eliminated in the final eight that you think should have been there. I'm going to talk about one that was eliminated in the final eight that should have advanced on. Grant Hill against, against Kansas in the final game, in the championship game, was eliminated by the Zion Williamson 360. And look, I know people love Zion. There's a big recency bias going on here. Zion's an amazing player, and I'm thrilled he was in a Duke uniform. And the dunk against Clemson, the 360, was incredible. But there was no defense. He stole the ball. It was uncontested. It was like a dunk it contest. Was a, it, I was I was also in attendance for that with I think with Donald, right? Donald, you were at that game with me, and yeah. at the, the, at the we were standing right next to each other. Yeah, right. Yeah. We were at that game together. It was awesome. Sorry, Jason. Continue. It's amazing. I'm. It's a great dunk. But Grant Hill's dunk was in a national championship game. There was defense that was there, and the most important thing about it is. Duke had never won a national title up until that moment. We had just defeated UNLV. Folks, if you don't remember, we did not beat UNLV for the national title. That was the national semifinals. And everyone thought Duke's, Duke was gassed, that Duke had nothing left for the game against Kansas. Kansas had coasted to an easy victory over UNC. The Tar Heels fucking suck. So we were we had played a really tough game against UNLV. Kansas had easily beaten UNC, where Dean Smith walked off the floor with 30 seconds left in the game. This is legend. <clears throat> Love seeing. And everyone figured Duke didn't have anything in them to play Kansas in that championship game. And then Grant Hill dunked like on top of the entire world. He went through the ceiling to do it. That's the most important dunk in Duke history. It energized the team. It took us to our first national title. The most important dunk in Duke history. Period. End of story. That should have made the finals ahead of Zion's dunk. And by the way, the dunk that's going to win is Dante Jones doing push-ups against UNLV. That's the best dunk in Duke history. The most that important dunk, dunk, is, dunk, the is, most so important dunk is Grant Hill. The best dunk is Dante Jones. Okay, so I, I'm going to wrap this up really quickly. Okay, so the Zion 360 is probably the best dunk I've ever seen in person. Full stop. I was sitting next to Sam when it happened. He literally had to catch me to keep me from smashing my head on the roof. 
we both literally had to hold each other back from the court. And we were in like the second to last row of Cameron when this happened. Greatest dunk I've ever seen live in person because he did a 360 with the game still in doubt because he didn't care. He was Zion Wibbs. And uh, also all those angles of the guys jumping up, you could see all that from our vantage point. Okay. Now, uh, the Dante push-ups, when he did that, I was in college. The entire campus was doing push-ups for the next month. Anywhere you went, pickup games, class, BC Walkway, Kville, Cameron, the gym, everywhere. Everyone was doing push-ups at that point. And anytime that I swear, Dante, when he walked, everyone was just like, ah, ah, just doing the push-ups until someone would pick him up. Absolutely great. But I I love the I love the Great Hill dunk. I love it. It's one of the greatest dunks of all time. The Gerald Henderson dunk to me, to me, is the most meaningful. Here's why. Again, like Sam said, I was at the game. Sam described the yell that he had when he did the dunk and he did the stomp. I don't know if you can hear this on TV, but it sounds like there's a very partial crowd at that moment. All right. There was maybe 50, maybe 100 Duke fans at that game. We sounded at that point like it was Cameron. I have never yelled louder for a dunk. And the thing was, after the primal yell that you that everyone let out that was in Duke Blue, the silence. The silence <laughs> of that crowd. Incredible. Where everyone was just like, because again, they had just celebrated like they won the national championship when Nolan got knocked out. And then when that happened, the very next play after like, I mean, it was a timeout to get, you know, Nolan some medical attention and get him off the floor. Uh, I mean, here's the thing. They barely even clapped for Noah. You know how, like, you know, someone gets hurt on the other team, you kind of, you know, give them a little clap, like, hey, hope you're doing better. There wasn't any clapping there. So, like like Sam said, Gerald said, oh, are we, are we just going to do that? Okay. Dunk the life out of a gym. Just absolutely dunk the life, and the silence is something that I'll never forget because that silence carried the rest of the game. At that point, everyone in the gym knew that they had pissed us off. And nobody ever wants to deal with a Duke team that's pissed off. So with that, that memory. Amen, brother. Amen. That's going to do it for us in episode 213 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. If you have topics out there that you would like to see us cover, questions you have, hit us up at dbrpodcast at gmail.com. As the NBA starts coming back, we'll have more news, obviously. But right now, we're kind of in that tweener phase. So you guys help us out. We will be back next week to discuss whatever news there is. But until then, for Jason Evans and for Sam Klein, I'm Donald Wine. And we will, as always, leave you with the Duke Band to take us home.